0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 99 with L. Nicole Cabe, who is a very talented theater artist, director, solo performance artist based out of the Seattle area. Nicole will be directing the untitled play about art school, Nell Tankas' newest piece for Copious Love Productions. We'll have the link for more information in the episode description. This episode is sponsored by Parley, which is a fantastic playwriting group, which I had the honor of participating in one of their staged readings earlier this year. More information at parleyproductions.com. There are two upcoming workshops that you're not going to want to miss. The first is August 30th, 7 p.m. at West of Lennon. No Strings Attached by Greg Brizendine, directed by the amazing Rebecca Torino-Collinsworth. Grace is a recent widow living in a retirement community in Florida who discovers a sexy swinging subculture burbling beneath the surface of all the golf cart paths. Caught up in the excitement, Grace strays farther and farther from the woman her friends have come to know. But when Grace makes a choice to live her life to the fullest, who will have to live with the consequences? So that is August 30th at West of Lennon. And then September 6th at 7pm, two plays written by Grace Carmack insufficient and the other side of silence again 7 pm at west of lenin in insufficient astrid and peril are new to love and determined to make it work from an awkward dinner date to a not so casual hike in the woods these two are hell-bent on figuring each other out that is until an unexpected run-in with a stranger pushes them to what could be the breaking point in the other side of silence a woman copes with the breakup of a lifetime by packing away everything that makes her hurt what she discovers is a seemingly endless stream of troubling thoughts that have kept her from moving on. So those two plays are September 6th at West of Lenin. They feature Kamaria Hallams-Harris, who was a previous episode guest. Like I said, check these out. New plays. It's important. Life Force Theatre, parleyproductions.com. Please enjoy episode 99 with L. Nicole Cabe. So I'm sitting here with a very talented, very talented human being. <laughs> El Nicole Cave is here. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you. So you, ju- just right before we pushed record on this interview, you yeah. were just leading a HowlRound Twitter chat about yes. interactive and immersive
1: theater. I was.
0: How the heck did that happen and how did it go?
1: Um, It went really, really well. Um, it started because um, I, I feel like we all have more questions about interactive theater as... We're trying to, as theater artists, trying to push the boundaries of what live performance can do um, and distinguish it from Netflix and television and movies and things like that. That's been a big discussion for a few decades, but... Uh, I feel like that's getting pushed harder as technology is changing because um, we have more opportunity to do really interesting things like with augmented reality and podcasts, things like that. I saw
0: because uh, I was playing Pokemon Go. Yes! Day.
1: Yes! I have very mixed feelings about Pokemon Go, but I don't blame anybody for playing it. I played Ingress for like a year and that was like the precursor to it, so okay. I get it. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we had a big discussion about um, like people who have done interactive theater um, and immersive theater and more, what that looks like for them and sort of what worked and what didn't. Um I've been to a few interactive plays. They tend to be really different. Um like there was one at uh Hollywood Fringe that I went to that um it was actually a 30-minute video game where there were three people from the audience that uh volunteered to come up um and play the game and then if they lost the game they'd get replaced by three more people who were volunteers. As well. Um, and I think it had some weaknesses, but it was a really interesting concept. And I think if they spanned it out into more like a one or two hour show, it could be fascinating. So so my brain has been rolling on this for a while. Sure. Um, and Hellround needed a moderator for this week. And I was like, hey, so I've been thinking about interactive theater. Let's have a discussion about that. And they were like, cool, you're in. Um, yeah, so that was 11 to noon today.
0: <laughs> for, those, for those who might not know what HowlRound is, oh yeah. the elevator speech for it?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, they are a theater collective, I suppose. Um, they publish blogs um, from guest writers usually about theater best practices and uh, issues that come up in theater like dealing with cell phones or... That's a big one. <laughs> there's a there's a whole lot of discussion about Patty LaPone when that happened. Um Yeah. But also, like, there's been a whole series about um, video games and how they could relate to theater. Um, there's been a whole series about climate change and how that's changing the way we construct narratives in theater. So yeah, so they're they're a theater resource that mostly is about sort of criticism and best practices.
0: It's I, they're amazing. They are. Y'all should check them out. And is the Twitter is the Twitter chat a weekly thing or a monthly thing?
1: It's usually a weekly thing every Thursday, eleven a.m. Pacific Standard, two p.m. Eastern, something like that. Um, and they don't always do it every single week, depending on if they get a moderator or not. But it's typically every week.
0: Great. Yeah. What were what were some of the highlights from it?
1: Uh, oh, I have to get my phone for that. Hang on.
0: Do it. <laughs> Is live well it's not really live but we do think <laughs> like finding our cell phone and uh, that's awesome
1: and and loading links from that <laughs> yeah um, I don't need to repost that on Facebook thanks <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's very, it's very exciting for me to watch you in person, but dear listeners, it's, it's very exciting. Just just
1: enthuse yourselves, with you? <laughs> it. There's really nothing like watching somebody else stare at their phone. It's true. <laughs> um, somebody jumped in kind of late in the game and mentioned something about ARGs, uh, which are different from augmented games. They're actually uh, real time with actors who lead the audience through the story, but they typically are like corporate training right now but it's a a really interesting interesting jumping off point i think oh and i mentioned room escape games which um i haven't done one officially i mean i've played like video game versions of it but i haven't done one in person but i really want to because i think that would be an interesting avenue i I would
0: freak out so much i mean there's the what there's there's a lot of pressure (laughs) there's a big bang theory episode where i don't know if you remember this well or if you watch the show but they a little bit they figure it out and like Four second four minutes and they're supposed to take like forty-five minutes and then right. guy playing the zombies like
1: are, are you sure are you sure <laughs> <laughs> you wanna look under that table? That would be pretty awesome. Um yeah, oh yeah, so we talked about uh like choose your own adventure stories too and how that might um work. Uh if you go to the HowlRound hashtag on Twitter, there's a lot of listings right there right now of theater companies that are doing interactive and immersive theater too, which is great and shows uh, beyond sleep, no more. Cause that's kind of the one that we all right. ping bench- for that. Um, yeah. And uh, what is it? Heroic games um, was co-writing the series on HowlRound Round about video games and theater. Cause they're actually constructing a series based on a video game that they also produced. That is a live interactive theater show where the audience chooses the ending um and one of the things they found was that it takes a really long time like video games take years and years to come out in part because you're constructing all these narrative options um and so that's what they ended up having to do with a lot of is it took a couple of years to write a script that was like an hour and a half long so yeah it's fascinating stuff
0: well it reminds me because we i mean we have taste Of that in, I mean, immediately where my mind goes is The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is a musical where I haven't seen it, but I believe the audience decides who the murderer is, and then they get to sing a big song. But obviously, that is is pairing it down to three different options, right? Right. And when you have multiple options, and just, I think we we all know how difficult it is to deal with a live audience.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean,
0: speaking of cell phones, like explicitly telling them turn off your cell phone and then right. there's always that idiot who doesn't and then it's like can't hear that it's their phone that's going off right. during the middle of the show <laughs> and the poor actors are trying to focus and keep going. But it's it seems like possibly that's the it's it's a new front it's an interesting new frontier for theater right. because uh there's some danger involved in in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Risk, risk.
0: Maybe not danger, but risk.
1: Well I think I mean there could be if you If you don't, like, we've talked a lot, too, about how um, you have to be very careful with boundaries around the audience. Like, it's not necessarily teaching them, but giving them space to explore. Um, But you don't want the actors to be in danger. You don't want the crew to be in danger. And you don't want the audience to put themselves in danger either. So you do have to sort of construct barriers around that um, and give them a little guidance. But what if they don't find your guidance interesting? either like what if you say yeah you can totally use your cell phones and then they just spend the entire time like checking facebook and snapchat (laughs) right right like they're not involved in your show anymore they got bored and so they're doing something else what do you do with that too so yeah um and then like there was one um mariah c kaminsky a few years ago did a uh rock musical solo show because she's a badass yeah, um amazing. about uh bonnie and clyde um at
0: hugo house right? yeah
1: and one of the first things that we did was it wasn't a terribly interactive show there were interactive elements to it um but one of the first parts that uh, of the show that you're introduced to is like you walk into this room a few audience members at a time and you're handed a rifle that the firing pin has been taken out of it but it's a real rifle so it's not going to shoot anything, and there's obviously no ammunition or anything. But it, it right. got passed around to all the audience members, so we all kind of investigated it. And, and I like I didn't know anything about guns at the time, so I kind of went nope and passed it off to somebody else. Right, right. Um, but like, of course, there was that one dude in our group who decided to point it at everybody. So okay. he was that one guy. Yeah, like we all knew it was safe, but that's not the point. Like, there's probably going to be that audience member in an interactive show who just has to push those boundaries because that's what they're there for. So there's well, remember, a safe space there. I
0: remember seeing American Idiot at Arts West, mm-hmm. and there were the two tracks. There were the there was the just regular sit in your seats, which is what I did, and then there was the immersive mm-hmm. experience where there were three groups of audience members that were led around and I that show is so you know an audience member is one inch out of place they could get their toes stomped on or whatever and right I just but I loved it I loved it it was great (laughs) I was glad I wasn't moving though because I'm clumsy and if there was a way for me to like trip an actor actor accidentally I would have done it but I think it's I think probably what we'll see is not only new devised shows that are made explicitly for the purpose of getting the audience to interact, but then, Mm -hmm. uh, new takes on already written shows that make them more interactive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's like, uh, Seattle Immersive Theater just did Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Um, which I, I didn't unfortunately get to see it, but yeah, like taking an older script and placing the audience in such a way that they are way more involved in it.
0: But even even in that, it was interesting because there there was the you know the party scene where Romeo mm-hmm. and Juliet meet. Definitely, all the actors were working their butts off to get like to talk. You know, Lady Capulet would fill your glass right. to interact with you and to uh, try to get you to dance or whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is Seattle, and even the theater people <laughs> were sort of like, "I want to sit in the corner." I'm just with here to watch dream, the show. You guys, like you're acting. I am right. not acting. I, I think it's just. I found that interesting because people had signed up for an immersive experience. Yeah, they knew ahead they of time. they sort of wanted to be a fly on the wall instead of in the thick of it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So you just got back from a month-long tour. I did. <laughs> Where'd yeah.
1: you go? What'd you do? Um, so it was my solo show, Infinite Expectation of the Dawn, which is a one-woman sci-fi dystopian kind of near future after Civil War Two. Um, I play two characters, um, it's essentially a memory play too, where the characters are like recounting their lives and how they sort of met each other and then took different paths. Um, but yeah, so I, gosh, I toured it, um, I did like three shows in Seattle last year and then I toured it to Rogue Fringe in March earlier this year. And then last month, uh, which was June for those who may be listening at a different time, um, (laughs) I I went to Atlanta Fringe Festival first, which was the beginning of June, and then um, I hopped over to the Hollywood Fringe Festival, which is actually a month-long Fringe Festival. Um, There's like 300 plays or something crazy like that. It's insane. Um, And so I did the last two weeks of that festival as well. Um, Yeah, and uh, small audiences, but very enthusiastic about the work that I did. So, it was cool. Can you talk a little bit about
0: the the whole pro- the process from generating the piece to mm-hmm. applying to getting it up in front of the audience what is that gestation like how long is that
1: period, gestation yeah. period and what's <laughs> it like uh i'm for i think it's different for everybody and for every show but for me the gestation period started um in 2012 when i took a solo performance class uh just to kind of brush up my writing skills um, and I wrote this 10 minute show, um, that was the beginning chunk of the, the longer solo performance. And after the class is over, I thought, huh, I really want to go on tour. I've never done that before. Um, and it'd be nice to have a solo show under my belt. That's something anybody who's in theater should probably, if you're a performer in any respect, you should probably get that together. Um, and I like this world, so I kind of want to expand it and see what happens. Um, I applied for the Seattle Fringe Festival uh, starting the year. It came back in 2013. um, But I didn't get in until, or no, they came back in 2012. Um, But I didn't get in until 2014 um, because they're a lottery. That just, my name didn't didn't get drawn out of a hat. So that's totally fine. Um, But so I spent the next couple of years like writing it, refining it, making sure that it was ready for stage. It was nice to have that time because I don't know if it would have been ready in a couple of months necessarily. but yeah, so I performed it for the first time in September 2014 as part of the Seattle Fringe Festival, um, and then decided to keep applying it to places. And part of the fun, too, uh, for me, at, of um, taking it to other places is audiences react a little bit differently to it. They find different things that are interesting um, in different geographical locations in the country, sure. of course. Um, and, uh performing it more, uh, obviously I start refining it a little bit. Like I've made a ton of internal cuts, um, as, as I've sort of gone on and audiences have responded to some things and not responded to others. So it's also a living, breathing play, which is a lot of fun to be part of.
0: Right on. You, you talked a little bit before we started recording about the different application processes yeah. for different festivals. Can you give us sort of your cliff notes or guide to what to do or what not to do when applying for these different festivals?
1: Sure. Um, a lot of them are lottery-based, uh, at least in the U.S., which is pretty nice um, because you the application process is mostly online. It tends to be pretty short. Um, you basically just say, yes, I have a play. It's this long. Here's my contact information. Here's your application fee. And then you either get your name drawn out of a hat or you don't. So that's a completely fair way of doing it. Sure. Um, And then, you know, you have to like have the show basically (laughs) after they choose you. Um, Hollywood Fringe Festival, and there's a couple of other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head, um, but those are Bring Your Own Venue. So you actually like you communicate with the festival a little bit, but for the most part, you're on your own. So they have recommended venues and you pick one and you say, hey, I've got a show. Can I be in your space? And then you negotiate a contract. Um, So you're much more responsible for your own production, uh, whereas, like, fringe festivals like Atlanta or Rogue Fringe or Seattle Fringe does this, too, uh, help you out a lot more with marketing because they're lottery-based. And then there's a few that are juried, um, but obviously you have to be a pretty big deal to get into those because they invite you. (laughs) Like, there's the one in... um, It's not the Frigid Festival in New York. It's... uh... United Solo in New York is a juried solo performance festival, so you get invited to come perform for their time. But like most of the French festivals, you don't really need a whole lot of application stuff up front. Um, There's a couple where they ask you to send video, um, but not a lot of them will do that. Sure.
0: Yeah. So can... I was struck earlier when you said if, you, if you're into theater you should probably have a solo show. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which I think I agree with but I kind of want to dig into it a little bit. Okay. So for someone who's hearing that is like no I just want to do like all I need to do is audition for plays and like get into some of them. I just want to dig into that a little bit and how your exploration of solo performance has also informed how you write and talk about your work just
1: mm. in general. Yeah. Um Uh, For me, it really solidified more uh, of my writing skills, I guess. Um, I think in theater these days, uh, whether you consider yourself more an actor or director or writer or producer or whatever, designer of any kind, um, it's important to try everything at least once in theater. Um, Like I stage managed actually once in my entire life. Uh, And I'm not good at it. (laughs) It's not my thing. But now you know. But now I know. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I think you should try everything. Um, A lot of people who do that find that they have a lot more skills than they give themselves credit for. Um, And with the push toward not just more interactive or more immersive work, but um, more actor-generated work, I think right now we're starting to push more toward, like, repertory work. Um, we're relying less on playwrights to be just playwrights. Like they have to be more of a complete member of the company. Um, and so it's starting to feel like everybody does a little bit of everything because that's how you meet people. Um, also having a solo show is... It looks really good on your resume. (laughs) Um, I now have all of these points where I've been or where I've done the show that take up like half of my acting resume, which is pretty cool. Um, And uh, it's a way to, like, you can invite other people, of course, to your performances, like casting directors, subtle hint. Um, Or for me as a director or somebody who's going to cast a show, um, if I see that somebody is able to self-produce, then I know that they are self-sufficient um, and they're not, like they're going to be willing to pick up some slack, um, which in fringe theater anyway is is pretty necessary. Um, like clean up your own dressing room space at the end of each performance, yeah. for example. Um, our stage manager can only do so much. So uh, so that gives me a good sense that they might be a little bit more reliable, they might be a little bit more respectful. Um, I don't think that this is always true with all solo performers, but you know, self-production is a pretty tough thing to do. So,
0: now, do you do you bring in someone else to look at you and direct you when you're doing it, or are you you're sort of self-directing?
1: Uh, I I definitely did the big no-no of self-directing uh, this particular piece, um, which I think has a little bit to do with me being more insecure about stuff like that and trying to get this off the ground by myself. Right. Um, I think in the future I will bring in outside directors for sure um, to sort of double check the work. But I had a college professor actually who did a lot of professional solo performance um, and he never brought in an outside director. He just filmed himself and then took notes on that. Um, So I kind of tried that the first couple of times I did performances of infinite expectation as I filmed myself while I was doing it and then took notes and revised that way. So...
0: For yeah. someone who wants to, who hears this or, or has, has thought about dabbling in solo performance and they're like, okay, cool, I'm going to do it now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where do they start? Obviously a class, like I know I took solo performance with uh, Mark Kinnison at mm. Freehold, which was, he is absolutely amazing. I bow down to him. Nice. But, so, but outside of the traditional class setting, how do, you, how do you find stuff that you get excited to put into a solo show?
1: Uh, I mean, I. So my show is science fiction. It's not like my biography or right. anything. Right. Um, there are elements. That's
0: a misconception, right? Sure. A lot yeah. Of have that. It's. You know, you say solo performance, and it's going to be
1: though. like my traumatic childhood or whatever, and it's. I'm not saying that those are terrible. A lot of those are really, really amazing, but it is something that you kind of see as a stereotype of what a solo performance should be. Sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, so mine is science fiction. Um, because that's how my brain works um that's where i tend to write a lot um i have like one published piece of uh short sci-fi and i i'm a sci-fi writer just in general like on the side um so that's for me the obvious choice if i'm gonna write a solo performance is to write in that genre um so i think like if you're really into murder mysteries then start there uh if you're really into romance then i like i don't I've never heard of a romantic one-person show, but I think that that could be really Challenge cool.
0: Accept accepted. Yeah,
1: <laughs> do it.
0: <laughs> but it's sort of this: thing. it's follow your highest level of excitement. Exactly, because you're gonna be rolling around this ma- with this material by yourself for a heck of a long time. Yeah. So don't do something you think you should do. Do something you're really excited about.
1: Right. Right. And I mean, even if you start writing from the oh, I should write about this place, like also just let it go. Wherever your imagination takes it, it might go completely off the rails, and that could be interesting.
0: I, l- I <laughs> love where this has got because I mean I'm not actually taking notes, but I'm like, damn, like this makes a lot of flipping sense. so Thank you, thank you for <laughs> you're sharing your insights on that. Sure. Uh, let's transition a little bit into your directing life, yeah, when you're performing life to your directing life. Uh, you work a lot with Copious Love. How did that start? Talk <laughs> about last year's plan and then this year's play. Sure. No.
1: Um, I actually, I haven't worked a lot with Copious Love. This is going to be my second production with them, but I'm really excited start. about it.
0: Ah, I mean, it feels like a lot. Us. Like I
1: spent probably 10 months last year working <laughs> on Codename Kansas, and that wasn't even the full production process. That was just me coming in at like the tail end of the script writing process and going from there. Um... Yeah, so uh, I saw a notice online for uh, Copious Love needing a director for Codename Kansas, um, which was a science fiction action thriller comedy version of The Wizard of Oz <laughs> um, taking place in the post-apocalypse and the post-post-apocalypse Um so they they had a few like details about what the script was basically going to be about. And as I've mentioned, I'm a sci-fi nerd, so I kind of went, I'll direct that. That sounds great. So I sent in my application, um, I actually wasn't the original director they chose. They uh, because there's a lot of cinematic elements of um, like projected images and and interactive kind of stuff for the actors to interact with um, on a screen. Uh, they went with somebody who had a little more film directing experience. I'm not a film person, like, at all. I think I did two student films in college, so totally not a film person. Um, But she ended up uh, feeling like the project was not within her scope and dropping out. Um, So then they contacted me and were like, hey, we totally want you to be the director. You were, like, just barely not our first choice. Um, And so I helped them edit the script. I did a little bit of dramaturgical work. Um God, the marketing by itself was like a four-month-long production process. I love
0: the marketing for that. Yeah,
1: it was it was a lot of fun, but it is one of those that it turned into actually its own production. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um which is not a bad thing. It's just something to consider. If you're gonna do a really big play, the marketing is a separate production. <laughs> um and yeah, so so it was a lot of fun. Um we had a cast of 14 actors who were all frickin' awesome and constantly engaged in the work and loved the shit out of it. Um, And yeah, so when uh, Nell Tankus's play, Untitled Play About Art School, came up, because that's the next show that they're going to do in their upcoming season, um, I've worked with Nell before um, on Rosemary, which was three years ago now. Um, And so they actually asked if I would be interested to be, to direct this new show. And I thought about it for a minute and was like, yeah, I love Nell as a playwright. So mm. absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so untitled play about art school um, probably won't change the title. There might be a title change. Unlikely. I would love that title. Yeah, we've had some questions about like how relatable art school is for people who have never been to art school or are okay. not involved in the right. arts. But I think the fact that it's a big dark comedic jab at art school in a lot of ways. There's a whole lot more to it than that, but that's kind of where it started. Um, Like, I feel like everybody can relate to that. Really. Um, Yeah. There's also going to be a huge flesh eating puppet uh, and a lot of stage blood. (laughs) Knock on wood. We're, we're aiming for a lot of stage blood. We just had a production meeting last night and, and the poor props master was like, we're talking about gallons. Uh, that's my hope. (laughs) I'm pushing for that. <laughs> There's probably going to be a splash zone. We'll have to like hand out ponchos and stuff. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So the poor props master was like, I don't know if I want to do that much karo syrup and red food coloring. It's going to get real messy. And I was like, okay, but please
0: <laughs> as much as possible, please It'd be great. awesome.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so that's coming up. Um, I love working with copious love. They are one of the most generous theater companies that I've worked with. Um, not like financially generous they are financially generous as much as they possibly can because they're a small company but um just with their time and um their emotional availability and their kindness like they are super awesome to work with um so i feel very lucky that i'm getting to work with them again and i'm very lucky i get to work with Nell again because they are an amazing playwright as well
0: yes 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 (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. Yay. December first, December first. Folks can get more love at more love, more information, at copious love, <laughs> and more love. Probably. Website, which will be in the episode description. Let's get back in a time machine. Okay. To little six-year-old doodle, you. Doodle, 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 doodle. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> it makes my day. Where, where did your love of theater come from? Is there a moment that you can pinpoint? Where you're like, this is the thing. This is the time that I knew this was the thing uh, that I would
1: do. There's two. Um, so my grandmother uh, was uh, very supportive of things like reading and the arts. Uh, Usually when we'd go visit for some holiday or other, we'd always go to the art museum, we'd get a bunch of books for Christmas, we'd go see plays. Um, She had a subscription to a theater company. uh, She lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And so she had a subscription to a company there uh, called Playhouse on the Square, which actually does really good productions. Um, And they would either do The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or Peter Pan for Christmas. So the first one I really remember was Peter Pan and I was four. Um, and I don't know who thought this was a good idea because, in hindsight, it's kind of weird. Um, but the actor who played Captain Hook was in the lobby saying hi to everybody, like Santa Claus, basically. What? Right? Okay. <laughs> I think, I think they were trying to like maybe de escalate it for kids who might get really invested and would be actually afraid of him. Um, but That's you
0: could, fair. Okay. yeah,
1: but you could sit on his lap and like get your picture taken with him and stuff. And so I did that. I have that picture somewhere. Um, and the actor was super nice and really good with kids. And so then I went into this play and I was like, dude, Captain Hook is awesome. <laughs> um, so that was when I remember falling in love with theater. And then um, when I was in elementary school, um, yeah, it was it was first grade. Um, my mom had this deal with me where uh, I could have two really big extracurriculars in my life. She didn't want me to like completely overbook myself, which is pretty smart. Um... But I could do uh, any two of my choice. And it usually was like some artistic thing and Girl Scouts. Because I did Girl Scouts for six years. Don't remember how to build a fire, but whatever. Um,
0: I'm going to take your badges away. I Well, (laughs) I don't
1: think I got the fire building badge anyway. (laughs) I definitely got the performing arts badge like every year. (laughs) Um, So the first one I did um, with Girl Scouts was a theater class. And uh, I... I think the company that put on this class at my daycare center probably like wrote their own scripts. Cause I don't remember them being fantastic or deep or meaningful or anything like that. But, uh, I was a psychologist in a 10 minute play about a guy who thinks he's a dog. I was his therapist. Okay. As a six year old. <laughs> and he was like six or seven years old too. Sure. So it was, it was even, it wasn't like I was doing this for an adult or anything, but that actually would have been pretty cool I kind of
0: want to see that play
1: now I know <laughs> I know I kind of wish we had it on video um but yeah so that was the first time I was ever on stage and it was really amazing and I immediately wanted to do it again because it was a complete rush like it's legit addictive um and so I I spent a couple of years like trying to do other things but in my head I was always like god theater was really awesome I want to do And so I finally got to do another theater class. And then it was like Girl Scouts in theater for years. (laughs) And then we moved and then it was just theater. So yeah, like in middle school, I was already setting up my, my time where I would be in school all day and then I'd be in rehearsal all night.
0: (laughs) I love it. Yeah. so did you did you end up going to college to pursue theater things yeah
1: I went to the University of South Carolina which is not specifically an art school by any means oh. um, but it was you know I lived in South Carolina at the time so it was the college that was available to me right um for super cheap uh, and they did actually have a really good theater department when I was there I don't know what it's like now but it was actually surprisingly good at the time. Um, so yeah, so I specifically majored in theater and minored in comparative religion, because I'm a nerd. Um, I think there's yeah. a lot of theater and religion. Yeah, yes, it kind of covers all the subjects, like yes. history and philosophy and literature and everything, like both of those together, just get everything.
0: So how do you get from South Carolina to Seattle? Uh,
1: I grew up in South Carolina. I didn't want to live there anymore. Um <laughs> I had some friends who thought that Seattle was an amazing place. Um, so I managed to get an internship with what was then the Wooden O' Company. Uh, it's part of Seattle okay. Shakes now. But yeah. they were they were separate at the time. Um, so I got an internship as like their assistant stage manager for a summer production uh, right before my senior year and came over here. And it's like the middle of summer. And we're doing outdoor theaters in parks. And it's beautiful. And I'm like, god, Seattle's great. So I moved here after I graduated and then realized what winters were like. Um, oh. <laughs> Which has been okay. It's just been a mild disappointment.
0: (laughs) Winters in Seattle. Kind of (laughs)
1: disappointing.
0: Bad review on Yelp. (laughs) Winters in Seattle. Totally. Awesome. I just, you're so well spoken. You're so passionate. And I feel like you're just on the cutting edge of where theater's going.
1: I, I hope so. I think it's going to be a fascinating journey.
0: What ex- What's what's on your bucket list? What excites you most now as compared to six-year-old you? Like, what is he doing?
1: Well, I'm definitely less excited about acting than I was as a six-year-old. I'm okay. more excited about directing dramaturgy. Uh, writing definitely has been a big passion lately. Um, I want to explore that a little bit more. Um, I have an idea for an interactive show that I have to actually put down in a proposal and send to people. Um... New work has been getting me really excited for like five or six years. Um, I feel like I'm kind of not doing my due diligence with classics like maybe I should, but at the same time, like, I'm not going to... What
0: does that mean? I'm sorry. What does that mean? (laughs) Or due diligence with the... I I know. mm, I know.
1: I know. I I,
0: I understand (laughs) where you're coming from, but I, I...
1: well, and like, you're yeah. going to grad school for something really interesting, but I feel like if I went to grad school for directing, then that's what I'd end up doing, is I'd end up directing a lot of classics that I really it's don't true. actually care about that much. And
0: that's what, yeah, that's why yeah. I decided to go to the program that I did, is I don't want, I have a similar aversion to plays written by dead white men. Yeah. Uh, it's... <laughs> Nothing turns me off more in terms of a theatrical experience than i I don't care if they're the best actors in the world, but going to a play written by a dead white man with only white, thin, cisgendered actors in it. yeah. I, I think I don't know. I to be so well, right. it's wrong.
1: No. yeah, do better. Who? Absolutely. absolutely. well, and and I have a question too about like, yeah, we can put a spin in the design and the production process and the interpretation or whatever of like trying to make this fit our modern sensibilities. Um, And from a dramaturgical perspective, yeah, that's really interesting. But also from a dramaturgical perspective, what's more interesting to me is the context in which the play was written, which we're not in that context anymore. Right. So why are we still producing things like Death of a Salesman or... Or Othello, when they have a thin amount of meaning in common with what we deal with right now, but they're not about what we're actually doing as a society at the moment. New plays are gonna cover that a whole lot better. <laughs> well, I, I think yeah. it's gonna,
0: I'm getting very, very excited right now, because I think it's <laughs> gonna be, I think right now, unfortunately, some artistic decisions are based, uh, you know, in terms of the the bigger houses about, okay, our patron base They're based
1: is, on fear. Right. Our patron yeah.
0: base is, you know, white folks ages 50 to 80 and... Or mm-hmm. in terms of major donors or substantial donors. Sure. And so, right, it's all about fear. But I think in the next 15 to 20 years... Yeah. Folks of our generation, right, are going mm-hmm. to become the donors.
1: Right. And
0: then... Well, we are. We are. Yeah. To an extent. Well, well, and it was interesting because I saw an, an article on social media that um, millennial giving is a huge, I mean, not me, I'm about to go to grad school, <laughs> but like the folks who are making more, it's a huge thing, but they're yeah. not giving to the arts as much as other things. And that's probably because artistic directors are making decisions out of fear to please right. the older people. I don't know if I'm making sense, but no, You, are. Like you totally are. it's going to shift seismically in the next it is. 20 years.
1: Well, and it, it is already with, um, I mean, a lot of people point to crowdfunding as being that big shift, which means that then, like, Fair, yeah. large houses are trying to sort of co-opt crowdfunding. And I think that takes a lot of the gloss off it for people. But yeah, uh, nobody's. Nobody my age and younger is donating to the arts because it's a societal good. They're donating to companies they think are interesting that are artistic or not. um, But based on what they're going to see that is going to hold their attention. So, yeah, maybe it's a video game or maybe it's a movie or maybe it's a play or maybe it's a scientific experiment or maybe it's a robot you know, but people are donating to individual companies or individual people and not to larger cultural ideals, I suppose. Because to me anyway, I think, um, like I remember being told, oh, the arts are good for you. And that sounds very prescriptive. Like they're good for you. And therefore only specific things are good for you. And that just makes me want to eat junk food and be really bad to myself you know like I want to go binge watch Star Wars again because it's not good for me right right yeah so so I feel like that's kind of more the driving force of like well you can't really tell me which entertainment things are going to be good for me and make me feel like I should be part of them because then I have actually less emotional investment in that um on the other hand, I'm totally gonna give some of the major houses in Seattle credit, including Seattle Rep for trying to find ways to keep their donor base interested in new works. They actually are like the playwrights program at this at Seattle Rep um, absolutely is yeah. doing some good work developing new plays for sure. So it's happening they're seeing the shift. they're just trying to like negotiate this huge. Generational divide between oh, I go to the opera because it's it's uh it's so good for me. It's, it makes me feel smart, and then people who are like, I just want to go see somebody get punched in the face.
0: Finding the balance yeah. between the two. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down. I I like. Are we ending on ending punching in the, punching the face? Punching in the face. <laughs> I did a whole interview about punch. My friend Jennifer wrote a book called Things I Want to Punch in the Face. Nice. Which is amazing. Uh, And so, yeah, I feel like that's a great button. Cool. So find theater that makes you so excited that you want to punch things in the face and not actual people. Yeah. is the moral of this podcast. (laughs) Anyway, if folks want to keep up to date what you're doing, your website is l-nicole nicol.com. We'll have that in the episode description. I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh thank you. Thanks for sitting
1: down with me. Yeah, thank you for having me.